Age of Valor, Volume 1, Heritage, by D. E. Morris. A full cast production, narrated by Conrad Hetzer. Laidley could hear his mother weeping in the next room. The sound of it was driving him mad. It was not his duty to console his mother. It was not his job. Not when she was like this. It was the Whalo's responsibility, and she was nowhere to be found. The sobbing continued, and Laidley slumped in his throne. His head was propped in one hand, while his mind frantically searched for something else to focus on. The breeze through the window, the people coming in and out of the open throne room, the smell of the old metal crown on his head, the hardness of the unforgiving throne he was in. Yet still, she sobbed. Stop it! It was worse than a constant trip and finally drove him to his feet. Stop it, you weak and irritating woman! His harsh words echoed all around him, and when they faded away, there was no other sound. Courtiers hanging by the doorways in hopes of catching Laidley in a talkative mood, jumped and shied away from his angry gaze. She had finally stopped crying. Laidley Squire moved forward in tiny, hesitant steps when Laidley did not sit back down. With slight trepidation, the squire bowed. Is there something you require, my prince? Laidley looked at the boy with misdirected anger. No! Leave me! All of you, get out! Find Merrick! The squire scrambled and hastened from the room, the courtiers awaiting an audience with the prince quick to follow. It was not long before Merrick was there, bowing as the squire had. My prince. Have you found my sister? The few moments of absolute silence had calmed him some and Laidley was sitting once more. No, your highness. However, I have been told by an informant that she was seen boarding a ship bound for the Isles. She was taken prisoner? I do not believe so. It appears she went peacefully, even willingly. Laidley stared at him, but said nothing. It was as though the young prince could not fathom what he was being told, and when he remained silent... Merrick continued. If I may remind you, the princess did not agree with seeking out your father's murderers. Laidley flinched, and the anger began to return. She begged you to leave them alone. She wanted to let them live, despite what they had taken from you. Your father's body was not yet cold, and your sister was willing to let those filthy Celts live. He held Laidley's gaze and saw betrayal there. It would appear she has chosen their lives over retribution. Merrick's tone had not changed from its ever-even tenor, but his chosen words had Laidley angrier by the second. She let them go. She helped them escape your wrath and your justice. Laidley was practically writhing in anger, unable to sit still in his throne. Your sister wanted them to live. Despite the life they had taken, the life of the father you both loved so well, they got away because of her. 
He paused to watch the effort he was having on Laidley, and when he spoke again, his voice was almost a purr. All but one. He could not keep the smugness from entering his eyes. You found that one, and you disposed of him. Laidley settled some, his expression softening. The monk... He paid for his crimes. You watched him die. You saw the blood run from his body as my blade slid along his throat. You saw the ground stained crimson as he breathed his last breath. How did that feel? Lifting his head, Laidley looked through his anger at Merrick. Hollow. The honesty in both the answer and Laidley's expression would have been rattling to a lesser man. Merrick only replied with, Next time, it will be your kill. Then it won't feel so hollow. It will become a hunger, an insatiable need that can only be met with blood. Laidley nodded, looking away from Merrick in thought. What will be done about your sister? The soft question was exactly the right one to bring back the deepening rage in Laidley. She has betrayed you, this kingdom, and your father's memory. She is now a sympathizer to the enemy. That makes her an enemy. She has denounced me. And I will not tolerate deserters to my throne. Of course not, your highness. Shall we then treat her the same as the others we hunt? Yes. A sound caught his ears, and Laidley turned his head, tilting it like a curious bird. Fanola had started crying again. It was enough to make him twitch. I cannot stand this! See to it that my mother is taken care of, Merrick. Do it now before I kill myself, only to be rid of the sound of her weeping. And do it quickly. I am assembling the Privy Council. My prince? They led my father through many a siege and slaughter. With what was sent to the capital of Sines. I am expecting quick reply. I will not be vulnerable. No. Forgive my impertinence, but how are we to know these children have the following or the funding to begin a war with Sadia? There is no high rule there, only a regent. Surely he wouldn't be foolish enough to take a country that's not even his into battle. He's been regent for many years, Merrick, since Nier was killed. Why wouldn't he take this opportunity? Conquering Sadia, as obscure a possibility as that may be, would give him fair argument to become the true ruler Seness is missing. Laidley smirked, seeing the surprise on Merrick's face. It would be a disservice to yourself, Merrick, to believe me too young and incompetent to think these things through. The older man dipped his head. 
Yes, your highness. Now, go. Finola's wailings were beginning to sound like that of a trapped spirit. The louder she wept, the more Laidly entertained the idea of driving spikes into his own temples. It was keeping him from thinking clearly, and sparking a temper that should have long been cooled. See to my mother. Quickly. As you command, my prince. Merrick left the throne room to let Laidly soak in his anger, and cursed the daily duties that kept him from Laidly's side. The young man was neither stupid nor too sick with grief that he could not see through the haze and rule his kingdom. Merrick needed him to be livid, to be so malleable under his command that there would be no hesitation or question. He had to do something quickly, or he would lose his opportunity to gain control. He took the familiar path down a hallway that would lead him to where the queen sat in mourning. Tig's robes lay on a stone table inside an antechamber off of one of the meeting halls, his body long since buried in the funeral pyre. It was here that Merrick found Finola. The queen looked up from the robes she wept into when the heavy door was pushed open. My queen. The torchlight was severely low in the windowless room, and the smell was thick and pungent. All he could see was the silhouette of Finola as she slumped on the floor. Merrick. Please. I do not wish to be disturbed. Your Majesty, your son worries for you. As his eyes adjusted to the dim light, Merrick could see the ashen skin of his queen. She'd not left this room since the day after Tyg burned. Not to bathe, not to use her own private chamber pot. In the corner of the room, Merrick could see the one she'd been using, and found a small pile of food that went unfinished. My son worries for no one but himself. He is his father's son, and will soon be as lost to me as my husband. Merrick stood beside the queen, the flickering and dying light of the torches hiding his expression in shadow. Your daughter is gone from you as well. She has left for the isles with the fugitives. This news did not seem to surprise the queen as she nodded slowly. That is well. It is where she belongs. She would have found her way there eventually. Would that I had gone with her. Your Majesty? Her words made no sense. Why would Luella ever desire to leave Montaigne, let alone go to the Isles? It could have been her grief speaking but she seemed more present now than she had in a long time. Fanola waved her hand. It does not matter, Merrick. <laughs> None of it matters anymore. <laughs> she began to weep again, and Merrick took another step closer. Your heart must be broken. Perhaps I may help to ease your pain. There was no chance for Fanola to ask what he meant. Not a breath was passed before he was behind her with his dagger. As the sharp blade ran across her neck and blood poured from the gash, Merrick had no thought or feeling for what he was doing. 
She tried to scream, but choked on her own blood, resulting in nothing more than a drowning, sputtering sound. Stepping back, Merrick stood to watch as his task was completed. Finola slumped over into Tig's robes, lifeless and immobile. After several long moments, he moved forward again, placing the hilt of his dagger in her hand. Your Majesty, no! As predicted, heavy feet sounded only moments later. The door was thrown open by three knights to find Merrick, against the wall, slouched on the floor. He looked stunned. She took my dagger from me. I had no chance to stop her. The three men stood perfectly still, only their eyes moving to one another for the briefest moments. Whether they believed Merrick or not, none had the desire to question the older man for fear of repercussion. Instead, Merrick was helped to his feet by one of the guards, while the other two checked on the queen. Shall we tell the prince? No. Let me... Take care of the queen. See that she is cleaned up so he doesn't have to see her this way. Laylee was in the same place Merrick had left him, almost in the exact same position. As Merrick entered the throne room, it was not with the same confident flourish that was his constant. This time, his steps were slower and heavier. He had laid these attention before he even had a chance to bow. What is it? I... I have not the heart to tell you. Merrick, what is it? The Queen. Your mother. Forgive me, Your Highness, but I could not stop her. Out with it, Merrick! What has happened? She took my dagger. It was at her throat before I knew what to do. There was a long, interminable silence as Laidley stared at Merrick. When he broke the quiet at last, there was no emotion in his voice, though the corner of his lips turned up at the edges as though he had been let in on a secret. She slit her own throat. Merrick nodded and said nothing, and Laidley relaxed. Did she know? Of Luela? She asked of her, your highness. I could not lie to her. Of course not. She did say that it came as no great shock your sister had gone. Or where she had gone to. Why might that be? My mother was mentally unstable. She said many things that made no sense. He cursed quietly. Relight the flame in the morning tower. We will burn her tonight, and I will be made king. There was a weight in his words that was not of sadness, but responsibility. I am truly all that Sadia has left now. Do not forget, my prince. You are not alone. With a slow nod, Laidley gave the older man a tight smile. You are a true and most valuable friend. You served my father well, and I have no doubt 
You will do the same for me. Merrick bowed but said nothing. Thank you, Merrick. Please see to the arrangements for this afternoon. Find me when it is done, and I am to be crowned. You do not wish to be present at your mother's burning. I need to make ready my counsel. My mother gave me nothing in life. I owe her nothing in death. The Privy Council was made up of several important men from Sadia's lesser kingdoms. Duke Terence Brooks and Sir Robert Drakken, Marquis de Swit, Count Alera, and a small handful of others closer to the capital. These men were from different kingdoms, but came to court when called, and lived inside Montaigne for weeks at a time with their families. They were well-versed in the politics that were involved in running a country, and had been Tyg's trusted counsel for many years. Laidley himself knew enough of politics to be confident, but told Merrick he would be leaning heavily on his knowledge if moments of uncertainty should arise. The men all stood when Merrick and Laidley entered, and sat only when Laidley had seated himself. Your Highness, I am deeply sorry for... Laidley waved a hand at Deswit. There will be time enough for that later. Gentlemen, I have assembled you now before the coronation, so that we may discuss the matter of war. Though it is not yet upon us, I cannot help but feel it will be fast approaching. The murder of my father was just the beginning. He shot Merrick a glance, unreadable. My captain tells me it is a small matter to worry over, that it is only two girls that have slipped through our fingers. But they're of Sinness, and I fear they'll find themselves confident with such a high-profile assassination. Sinness has no high ruler. Surely they would not carry out such a plan under the order of a regent. You... Would choose to believe that two little girls and an old monk acted of their own accord. Castle security is constantly on high alert. Our threats come at us from every angle. I find it hard to believe that an action such as the murder of a high king could have been conceived by these few minds. Men with armies behind them have tried to storm Montagne before. It is not a thing easily done, getting inside unnoticed like that. But that is the beauty of a small vigilante group. There are fewer numbers to worry about. They would have time to plan on their own and perfect what they needed to before any action was ever taken. Laidley sat back and let the men argue with each other, listening carefully. He was beginning to feel more like himself. The young man who observed before reacting, who thought before commanding. This would be Montaigne's defining reign. He would be the king people remembered for avenging the stolen life of his father, for smiting the enemy, and finally bringing things to order. We are but one small nation. Not even with all the men in Sedia. 
Could we overthrow the Celtic peoples? It was what Tig was trying to do. The others quieted and looked to Merrick, Laidly doing the same. He was not warring just for war's sake. It was a slow takeover of all six Celtic nations. In the beginning, at least. Near the end, it was his love of death that drove him. But the goal was never far from sight. The Celtic lands are the only places left in the world where the Gales can live without fear. Tig was after the fabled elementals, believing them to be hiding among the different nations. He knew by defeating the nations and bringing them under his rule, even from afar, he would eventually find these exceedingly powerful Gales. Syria was once part of those nations. It was Tig's father who made us an independent nation. It was he who made hunting the Gales into a sport and killed everyone he came across. Sadia was once many things. We are greater now than we have ever been before. He looked at Merrick. Find me a map of all seven nations. Merrick nodded curtly and left the room, biting back his anger at being sent on an errand like a page boy. No other nation rivals us in military numbers. My father's attacks were too quick to allow any real threat to develop. No kingdom, not even the higher ones, ever had time enough to amass the numbers and the skill to be any real opponent. Ibaze has been all but destroyed and handed over to us from the very first year of my father's reign. Where can they go in this world that they are not looked upon as a fallen people? They are nothing, and that was because of my father. Their island may be large, but their heart is no longer beating. They will never be a threat to anyone again. Merrick was back quickly and spread the large map across the length of the table with the help of a squire. Sadia, Ibeus, Alibayan, Sieria, Mirishan, and Braemar were each colored differently from surrounding nations, giving a green tinge to show them in unison, even though they did not touch each other. Laidly stood and went around the chairs to put a finger on Sines. The people of Sines have been without a leader for so long, I do not wonder that they should be too disorganized to do much of anything right now. Sieria could be a problem. They are known for their warriors. If we left them for last, they would rather surrender than fight. Which leaves the Nagin and the Dwarf tribes in Alabane, and the Volarum in Braemar. Here, Laidly frowned. The winged creatures of the Volarum were valuable as messengers. They could be defeated, but at what expense? He knew it was better to have someone in his employ willingly than as a slave, especially a creature who could so quickly disappear to other lands. It's the Volarim I pause at. Do they still think of themselves as part of the Celtic nations? I don't know. You, Squire, 
send in Ori's. The boy left immediately, and Merrick stood closer to the table to look at the map. You forget the elves on Mirashon. <laughs> Hardly. There was no mistaking the humor in Laidley's voice as he looked at the tiny island amid the much larger nations. The elves are not warriors. They would sooner jump into the ocean and drown themselves than fight all of Sadia. Brooks looked at the men surrounding the table, brows elevated. Is that the plan, then? Are we going to attack the nations as a whole? Wipe out the Celts? Laidley raised steely eyes from the map to Brooks' face. The world would be better off without them. Your Highness, we do not have the men to fight four nations at once. I do not plan on spreading the men so thin. Laidley went back to his chair at the head of the table and sat. These girls from Sinness, the ones who share the same surname as their former High King, will not stay silent when they receive the gift that was sent to them. If they are Nier's children, they will have a quiet army behind them by now. You believe Sines will fight to restore its freedom from Sadia. Your father had us believe Sines had no heir to the High Throne. My father hoped, but never knew for certain. I have no doubt of their retaliation at this point. They will come here for a fight, and fail without question. And we will make an example out of them. Here, where we are strongest. Before anyone could question Laidley, the door opened and pulled everyone's attention from the discussion at hand. A tall man wearing dark, loose-fitting clothing entered the room. His skin was golden brown, and his long black hair hung loose, hiding half of his face and the patch he wore over his left eye. Wings of onyx rested upon his back, and when he entered... He bowed his head to the entire room. You sent for me, Your Highness? Yes. Do the Volarim count themselves among the Celtic peoples still? No, Your Highness. We are an independent nation, answering to no other but our own High King and Queen, and that of the hosting kingdom to which the messengers are sent. You see... That leaves Sines, Sadia, the dwarves and the Nagina. One has no real ruler. One will bend easily to a stronger will, and two are made up of savages. When they see my father's murderer strung up for the birds to feed from, and her paltry little army lying bleeding at her feet, they'll fall before us beg for mercy to be spared the same fate. He waved a hand at Ori's to send him off, and the winged man gave a slight bow before exiting. Laidley looked across the room to Merrick once Ori's was gone, a brow raised in challenge. Well, Merrick, 
What do you think of the little princeling now? Merrick hesitated, only to return a wolfish grin. I think it is time for the princeling to be a prince no more. He looked out the window to the midday sun. We will go to war. But first, there is a coronation you must prepare for. Rain and darkness would have been more appropriate than a day of sunshine. Laidley stood on the parapet of the castle wall, eyes fixed on the fire lighting one of the turrets like a giant blazing torch. The body of his mother was still burning, and the people of the village were not quite sure what to do with themselves. When a ruler died, it was customary to have some sort of service. If the ruler had been well-liked, there might have been fanfare and deep mourning. If he had not been held in high esteem, there would have been time to pay respects, and then life would go on as normal. Word quickly spread that Fanola had killed herself. Though this came as no great surprise, the proceedings afterward were unnatural. The prince could be seen where he stood, and there was the understanding he would be crowned later that day. The expression he wore as he gazed up at the tower was a mixture of disgust and irritation. Could one man truly have so much hatred for his own parents? Merrick joined him, mirroring Laidley's stance with legs lightly spread and arms crossed in a defensive position. It will not be long now. Preparations are being made in the Great Hall for your coronation. No. Laidley didn't bother to look away from the turret. I want it outside in the courtyard. Double the guards if you have to, but I want everyone to see who now sits in the king's chair. There was a flicker of a smile, quick and elusive as Merrick nodded. As you wish. I want it done now. To lend authority to his words, Laidley looked at Merrick with a stern scowl. I want the fire at my back when I am made High King. Merrick remained expressionless. You realize such an act is as good as spitting on the grave of your parents. Laidley said nothing, only looked at the older man with the same hard expression. Once again, Merrick bowed his head. It will be done. He hesitated a moment, obviously wanting to say more, but stopping himself from doing so. This had the desired effect when Laidley lifted an eyebrow to give him the permission to continue. It troubles me to know, my prince, that you are the last of your bloodline fit to rule, especially with what we have planned. I fear that those would seek to kill you only to try and claim the throne for themselves, to try and stop the war. And what would you have me do? You worry too much, Merrick. With you by my side, I fear nothing. Besides, I will be taking care of that very worry soon. Yes, of course. Forgive me. I only wish to keep you aware of the potential dangers. If that is all, I will see to the arrangements for the ceremony, and have them move to the courtyard as you request. Turning, 
Merrick strode away with a small smile on his face. Within the hour, Laylee was dressed in the finest garments in all of Montaigne, clothed in a doublet of gold with black trimmings, black pants, and boots. He wore the jewels of his father, and a long formal cape of gold with white trim at the edges. The crier had been sent to tell the people of the village that their attendance was not requested, but required. This meant that whatever they were doing, no matter the importance, it needed to be put on hold so they could dress themselves as well as they could to be present as their new king was crowned. The air of confusion had not left, and as families gathered, they whispered among themselves at the oddity of the entire thing. Gazes went to the fire still burning in the highest turret, all knowing it meant Fanola was still not quite gone. If this was a sign of what was to come under Laidley's rule, it was not a good omen. Even with so little time to prepare, the ceremony was boisterous. There were musicians scattered throughout the crowds, along with fools that juggled and told jokes. There were maidens peddling roses and men selling mead. They may have all been confused at the timing, but for the residents of Montagna Village, a chance to play and relax with drinking was an opportunity to be taken. As the crowd was drawn in by laughter and levity, Laidley looked down on them from a high window in his chambers. They would love him. He would protect them from the rest of the world, and they would love him. Trumpets blared, announcing the ceremony was about to begin. Nervous, giddy, drunk or not, the crowds gathered around the stone platform the prince would walk out on to receive the crown of his father. The priest was already there, standing patiently at the end of the long red carpet. Beside him stood a young boy holding the golden crown on a white velvet pillow. Merrick appeared first, walking to stand on the other side of the priest, then Laidley filled the entryway. All chatter stopped, and every person turned to watch him. There was a quiet excitement on his face as he walked forward, his long cape trailing behind him. As he reached the priest, he knelt down on one knee and bowed his head. Laidley, son of Daig, Long ruler of the castle Montagna, by the blood in your veins, you are charged with leadership in the tragic death of your father and the sudden passing of your mother. As the eldest child, this right passes to you by generations of tradition. You are required to rule this land with gentility and fairness. Do you accept this responsibility? With head still bowed, Laley replied with a level, Yes. You will govern your people and your household with truth and justice. You will hold no other kingdom above your own, save that of the giver above. Do you accept this? Yes. You will give your very life for the protection of your kingdom, for a king is no greater than the one he serves by ruling. Do you accept this? Yes. The priest turned to take the crown from the pillow. It was heavy with jewels of garnet and onyx, 
and as it was placed on Laylee's head, the priest appeared indifferent to what was happening. Rise now, Laidly, prince no longer, but high king. The cheers that erupted as Laidly stood were artificial, given only because no one knew anything different. Though to some, with another nervous glance at the turret above, cheering was the last thing they wanted to do. Laidly swept an unreadable glance over his people, seeing faces without truly looking at them. He was aware of the fear in every one of them. It was palpable, and it was feeding him. They feared him now, but soon they would revere him. As he pulled out the sword from the scabbard at his side, the cheering abruptly stopped, and everyone stared at him in confusion and surprise. My first act as High King. His voice was strong and carried far without much effort. Turning to look at Merrick, he said, Kneel before me. Merrick wore no expression, and showed no hesitance in doing what was commanded of him. Merrick, most trusted advisor and friend to my father, now to me, his son, as I have been charged with the protection of this land, so shall you be charged as well. He laid his sword, broadside flat, against Merrick's shoulder. Should anything happen to me before I have an heir, your rule will be the next this kingdom sees. As the sword was lifted and moved to touch Merrick's other shoulder, the surrounding crowd was silent. No one was so naive as to think Ty could come up with all his dark plans alone. The delight the captain of guards drew from bringing pain to others was no secret. If he ever became ruler, their lives would truly be over. Now their best hope was in Laidley, a prince who had once been a sweet boy now turned into a young reflection of his father. Lifting his head, Merrick looked humbly at Laidley. It is an honor you bestow upon me, my king. Let us pray it is a thing we will never need to worry about. After sheathing his sword, Laidley offered a hand to Merrick. He pulled the older man to his feet, and the two embraced. As the villagers stayed quiet, Laidley broke the embrace and glared out at them. The applause was a soft pattering at first, but grew in decibel for fear of repercussions. Now, let us go have ourselves a drink in celebration. Tables filled the great hall where food was piled high, steaming and filling the air with rich, delicious scents. The courtiers, always loyal to whomever took the royal throne, laughed and danced, jovial as they ate and conversed. Laidley felt comfortable in his skin for the first time in years. He found his own laughter came easily, and a weight had been lifted from his shoulders. Men came to bow before him and pledge fealty, Women flirted, some from afar and some bold enough to be close. Afternoon came quickly, and evening pressed in soon after. Still, there was no sign that the party would end. Laidley was celebrating not only his new position, but a sure victory against the Celtic nations. He and his men raised glasses to one another, and shared secret smiles and unspoken congratulations. 
Merrick appeared to be the only one in the entire castle to be ill at ease. He stood off to the side, his expression hinting at irritation though he was trying hard to hide it. As Laidley walked across the wide hall to speak to him, the crowds parted to let their new king through. Merrick, you look as though your favorite cat has been killed. It would not hurt to smile. Laidley stood beside the older man and grinned out at the people. Glancing at Merrick, his brows rose. (laughs) Or perhaps it would. Forgive me, your majesty. What is it? Merrick glanced at Laidley as if weighing the effects of freely speaking. Laidley gave an impatient nod and said, Well, out with it. I do not wish to spoil the evening. If I was worried about you spoiling my evening, Merrick, I would not have even bothered to come this way. The new king looked across the room to a group of young females. When they noticed him looking in their direction, they turned to each other in peals of giggles. It made Laidley grin. Nothing you say can ruin my evening. Trust me. I fear we may be celebrating prematurely. Ah, but that is your job, isn't it? To be the voice of reason. The younger man sighed and crossed his arms. Do you know, I have never heard music like this in these halls. It transforms the entire castle into something completely different. Indeed it does, your majesty. Ready to get back to more uplifting guests... Laidley clapped Merrick on the shoulder. Relax, my friend. Eat. Dance. Take a woman or two back to your quarters and have a good night. He glanced at the group of young women again, a wicked smile on his lips. I know I will. Merrick stayed where he was and watched as Laidley crossed back across the hall to be greeted hungrily by the waiting females. The older man hid his disgust well. It wasn't Laidley's lechery so much as the lack of control Merrick had over the younger man. He needed counsel now himself, and it would not be found here. With one more quick look at Laidley to make sure he was completely preoccupied, Merrick left the feasting and the dancing behind to head for the dungeons. Everyone was too drunk to ever notice him gone. <laughs>